Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. Ian Thorson McCarthy is my guest for this episode, and he's perhaps the first bicoastal winemaker that I've interviewed. Okay, he's not actually a bicoastal winemaker, but he has made wine on both coasts, first in California and now in New York. His project is Artemis Botanical, and you can probably tell from the name that he doesn't just make wine. Vermouth and now cider are part of his repertoire, and he's equally thoughtful about them all. Ian is deeply rooted in natural winemaking, so much so that if you tested him on how to add sulfur to wine, he might fail. In this conversation, we talk about why he decided to move his winemaking to New York, why he decided to work with grapes that were not organically grown for the first time this year, and the importance of this to actually making a difference with his winemaking. Ian asked me some great questions too, and this conversation ranged into new territory that I think is very helpful in grappling with some complex issues. I'm really grateful Ian was willing to explore these things with me, and I can't wait to see what this new chapter of his wine life will bring. Enjoy! Hey, one other thing. I just wanted to say, because we do talk about distillation of various types in this episode, please... Do not attempt distillation at home without the proper training, licensure, and just all of the safety precautions that are necessary because it is a very dangerous process potentially and you can harm yourself and others seriously uh, in in many ways uh, through distillation, both the process and the product that results from it. So just that little warning, uh, don't try this at home (laughs) unless you are properly prepared, trained, and licensed. Thanks and enjoy. Ian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast and doing this. I appreciate your time and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Oh gosh, thank you so much for having me. So you are, well, there's a lot going on with you, sort of new changes in your life, but let's just start with Artemis Botanical and you know what that is, why it's named that even, and, and what, you, what you are doing with that, what that arrives from philosophically. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, it's not a typical winery name, you know. It's not no, named no, after it, you. It's not, yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. It's uh, <laughs> like a, a Greek goddess, and and I, you know, I've got some witchy friends <laughs> who might give me a hard time about that. Um, no, the idea was I, I had found myself in in growing up in food and then in beverage, and you know, Dave was a coffee roaster and a bartender and so on, and um, I really particularly fell in love with spirits. Um, fruit eau de vie more than anything um and also vermouth Mm. and i loved making cocktails with vermouth and and just drinking it on its own um and no please can i ask you something i mean this is a bit of a tangent we're going to come back to where that line of thinking was so don't lose that line of thinking Mm -hmm. but can you talk about vermouth vermouth is like having a moment and like what is vermouth can you describe vermouth what does that mean why why do you think it's so popular right now like what's what's going on with that that's a great question. Um, so at its most simple, at its most basic, it's uh, wine that's uh, fortified. That is to say a sort of a high proof spirit, usually a spirit from grapes. So think like a, a grape brandy, brandy is added to bring yeah. up the proof. Let's say, let's say from 12 to, oh, I don't know, anywhere from 15 to usually 20 is where they max out, at least legally in the United States. Um, and it's also aromatized. And that's to say that there's plants and other stuff in it. 
uh, herbs, spices, roots, barks, fruits, that sort of thing, uh, to lend aroma to it. Um, they're often given a little bit of sweetness to balance out uh, that botanical quality because it usually has a degree of bitterness to it. Um, uh, some people say that the, the word from vermouth is coming from vermut, the German word for wormwood. Um, wormwood is mm. in this family of artemisias. So uh, yeah, artemisia absinthium, artemisia pontica. Uh, those are important. The green fairy, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, we're, we're getting to a certain degree there for sure. Uh, so that, you know, you have a, a goddess giving her name to these families of plants that are used in these yeah. things. That's kind of where the Artemis uh, Artemis botanical name ties back into oh, nice. um, the, a moment though, I, a moment for sure, just because sort of everything's going through a moment. It feels like in the world of, of drinks at large, right. You know uh, where it's, yeah, that's true. It's You're hard right. seltzers and then it's mezcal and then it's going to be, you know, going to be something else the next day. And we're sort of cycling through, <laughs> I think with like something like vermouth or sherry, uh, which are, like give a lot of flavor, but are a little lower proof than, you know, an 80, 90, hundred proof spirit. Uh, I think guys, you know, we're, we get, there's some folks getting a little more conscious about uh, alcohol consumption and you see a lot of more non-alcoholic products entering that space. Uh, I think it's, you know, for folks who want something really tasty and flavorful, but aren't necessarily looking to get sloshed. It's a, it's an interesting alternative, but yeah. The sort of the wheel goes around and we find everything and something that's old is new again, of course, too. Yeah, it's like the gateway spirit, sort of. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And it's I mean, well, if, I mean, I mean, that is a joke, but I mean, in a way, and like I, I can imagine if you're a younger person who's, you know, entree has been whatever in high school or whatnot, and now you're of legal drinking age, vermouth is kind of like a nice step up you've get you still get fruit and sweetness but you're getting more complex flavors and a higher proof and things like that and i don't know i'm just yeah absolutely and i think there's something to say too about uh a a sort of like young jet set class that's looking at sort of uh southern french Mm. or spanish or italian sort of you know like apero lifestyle kind of thing like go to the beach (laughs) chew on some olives and eat some tit fish with my glass of vermouth that's just sort of a that's sort of a vibe that oh. seems to be in. Um, but it was interesting to get to your first question about how I found myself, like what is Artemis Botanical and how I found myself in this. Yeah. I was so becoming so interested in vermouth, but this is about 10 years ago now. I was in the Bay Area really falling in with this nascent natural wine scene. And I began mm-hmm. falling in love with, you know, organically produced wines made with little intervention. And while... Vermouth baking is a very intervention heavy process. There's, you're just, you're adding stuff, right? Um, there's kind of no way right. around that. I started right. at, Not at about least. terroir really anymore. Well, ooh, I think a case could be made for that. I, I yeah, no, I think a case could be made. As soon as I said it, I was like, I hope. As soon as I said it, I was like, I hope he disagrees. Yeah. <laughs> um, I agree and I disagree. It depends on the approach you want to take. If you want to be kind of cosmopolitan with. Uh, selection of plant materials in particular, and you want to go all over the world for right. it, which is typical for a particularly of like the larger producers. And this, we're in sort of this, uh, I think this is a Bianca Miragliism, but uh, this sort of Carpano era, right? Where producers in uh, Northern Italy and Piedmont and uh, this Eastern part of France sort of develop these styles that are still the dominant styles of vermouth making. 
And that's very much, uh, you know, we might take plants from the Alps, but we're going to take, you know, mace and nutmeg from, uh, you know, Indonesia or something like that. So it's right. it's plant material from all over the world. There are folks who are doing smaller regional versions, trying to get, uh, if, if just a sense of terroir just by sort of limiting location. Right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think there's a case to be made there to a certain degree. But no, is it is it as transparent as just a grape? wine a table wine no i don't think it necessarily is but it's still an interesting space to work in yeah so but that was the the natural wine movement the and the farming behind that um brought you in what what led to vermouth so it was that well that, i'm assuming you're making yeah. some or that's no that's a part I am, of, and, and that's sort of, <laughs> well this is sort of the funny story um is that i'm someone who wanted to be a distiller who ended up ah. making vermouth because it allowed me to distill things, right? So like the fortification agent uh, for vermouth. And I've, sort of, I've actually back up a little bit. Um, you know, I'm working behind bars and I'm, I'm falling in love with vermouth and using it a lot in drinks. But at the same time, uh, I'm starting to hold these bottles up to the light and through the lens at which I look at table wines through, you know, the natural wine movement at large and being like, oh, even if we just talk about not like an additive thing necessarily, but just good farming, realizing that these bottles don't, they don't hold up really. I put them to that light and they sort of fall apart. Um, There are a few small notable examples, but on the large um, it's, it's, it's not, you know, they're, they're mass produced products like, like the vast majority of spirits too. Right. Um, Right. So I I had this, like, I want to be making, you know, ecological spirits from organically produced fruit and vermouth was sort of an extension of that. You know, if I want to be distilling vermouth's a good outlet, I can use this in cocktails. I can use this myself right behind bars that I'm working at. Um, and so I, you know, I start to make wine and I've never made wine before, but you know, I'm like, Oh, I've distilled things before. It's just, you ferment the fruit, but you don't distill it. You just leave it there. That's what winemaking is, right? I can probably do this. Um, <laughs> That was a fun learning curve. It was it was fun to jump into that. I, I didn't uh, I didn't study anywhere, and I didn't work with anyone else. I'm for better or for worse. Everyone's got their own different process. I I love failing. I love falling flat on my face, and I, I kind of like doing it on my own terms. Uh, so I just jumped right into it, and I end up, of course, making far more table wines than I ever intended. So. The, the story, the genesis, I guess, is like, why is this company called Artemis Botanical? It's like, well, it was supposed to be a vermouth company. And if you're a vermouth company, Artemis Botanical makes sense. But now I'm just a winemaker who happens to make some vermouth. <laughs> Got it. All right. That does make a lot of sense. That's a good, that's a good backstory. I like Thank that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, wait, so the trial and error method was how you learned, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the tough, the tough way. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, you, how long had you, how long did you do that in California? How long was Artemis Botanical California based? Um, as, as a real entity and actually producing things on commercial scale, it was, it was four years at most. Okay, great. Yeah, four, four vintages. Now you've moved and I'm I'm curious, (laughs) (laughs) there, there is a, uh, there's a a trajectory there and, and I, I imagine there's a risk to impact on the business since you're moving its location and a lot of other things will change because of that. You're keeping it Artemis Botanical, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, 
That's a really good question. I okay, so still... there, there's some evolution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's it's funny because being in California and and making wine in from mostly from fruit that other people are growing from you know a, a fairly wide geographic area, right? You know, it could be. Uh, yeah. San, Santa Cruz, or it could be the Sierra Foothills, or it could be the far north of Mendocino, or any point in between. Um, right. In a, a you know a rather nondescript office park in Richmond, it doesn't sort of lend itself to placeness, particularly maybe with naming conventions. It isn't like so and so hill or so and so creek <laughs> because there's no hills and there's no there's no creeks there. Um, and now that I've really grounded in one place and i'm i'm going to be this spring putting vines in the ground for the first time on land that i owned for the first time in my life it it starts to make me think about placeness a little more um i at, i'm still working this out as it is now i'm thinking of maintaining artemis for vermouth projects and maybe table wine under a different separate label but we'll see Okay. I'm not a marketing gotcha. genius by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> You're feeling your way through it. I get it. That makes sense. You brought up something interesting, though, about what it's like. And I, I definitely think about that. I mean, we're, you know, we, my winery is called Centralis, which is named for where we live. And that's sort of the terroir that we're trying to own, obviously, by naming our winery after it. But that's obviously not where the grapes are grown, like, well, actually, I take that back. They are now. We are growing in right, our front right. garden, back garden now. <laughs> but, uh, but, but no. To your point, it's you know we of course buy grapes from many different vineyards all around Southern California and even into the Central Coast. And it is. I've often thought about that. I'm like, how do you think of terroir? You know, I mean, that's honestly what led me to sort of be like, okay, we have to really focus on, even though we can only make, you know, if we're lucky in five years, a barrel of wine. Uh, from our yard, like that's really where my heart is. And that's where I really, where I feel like that's why I'm making wine in the first place. Like I love making wine and I will always, you know, if whatever it takes to do that, you know, I'll find a way to do it as ecologically as possible. But that idea of placeness does lead you to this other thing. I, I think, you know, I, I think we talked about this, but the idea of buying grapes, um, it also has some challenges. Like what, what did you encounter from, that experience like what you know because that's really i mean I, as you mentioned it's sort of kind of how you have to start if unless you are from a, a landed class or you know the child of a you know inheriting a vineyard or whatever or just happen to like retire at age you know 30 from finance and buy a big piece of land in california or something like truly, that truly truly uh, you know you're you're trying to you're a virtual winemaker essentially you know you've you're, you're using rented space you're buying grapes from vineyards that you don't own. Um, what, talk about that a little bit. Oh, I found it so very challenging. I'm a, as kind of a maker and a tinkerer. I'm, I'm kind of a control freak in all aspects of life, actually. And wanting to sort of <laughs> dial things in in a way, but not necessarily having that control, um, I, I generally find really frustrating. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right, though. It's particularly in a place like California. And my partner and I, you know, we came out here, gosh, it's been just seven months now. Um, before that, when we were sort of like, okay, what's what's the plan here? What's the play? We kind of came to this quick realization that, that for us, at least, California couldn't be it. Um, 
part of that is climate truth told part of that is is drought and fires and temperature um but the big part of that was cost and that didn't feel like it was going to go anywhere um (laughs) it just we were never going to you know buy 15 acres and a house to live in with with the money that we had saved up so you know we found ourselves looking further away and cheaper and and further north to sort of thinking long term about the future right um this is this is a cold place to grow grapes right now and it's it's slowly <laughs> going to become a, a warmer and warmer place um no right. the, the, the challenges were i don't know I, I i really hated that part of it to a certain degree but also loved it it was so fulfilling to make good relationships with farmers yeah right um yeah and and part of that, that's like a back and forth a sort of you know, an outsider learning the realities, like coming in with ideal versions of like, this is how I want this to work. And then having someone right. who has actual experience at it, let me know what's up. But at the same time, encourage, right. um, encourage growth in certain ways, agriculturally, but also, also economically. Um, because we're, we as winemakers as sort of like Nagos winemakers here, um, are in to a certain degree kind of taking grapes to market right and if we can find different better uh, uh more sort of like sustainable long-term outlets for that fruit um i'm, I'm thinking of a, a fellow's wonderful farmer uh in lodi around campo uh, that i was buying grapes from he was right across the street he had uh, this acreage of muscat he was right across the street from uh the constellation brands winery which I don't know if you've ever seen or driven through. It's it's a massive campus of thousands of gleaming stainless steel tanks that look like little skyscrapers. It's it's you know yeah, this is yeah. this is one of the largest wineries in the world, making huge quantities of, of wine that's yeah, probably not going to interest us yeah. at all. Yes, um, and and you know he was selling his fruit there because they were buying it before, and and there's been stories in, in here in the Finger Lakes for sure, and in California recently of. Uh, of larger players just sort of dropping contracts, right? You know, Gallo has a contract right, with yeah. you and then all of a sudden they drop it. And now you're getting pennies on the dollar for, or, you know, or you're scrambling to find something else. Um, right. and, and not to say that smaller players like me are necessarily the most sustainable going forward, but it's like, <laughs> Hey, like you're growing good fruit. I would like to pay you more for this fruit than you're getting now. And I'd, I'd like to like, I, I think it's where you can get it. Let me plug you in with other growers, see what I'm selling this bottle for, you know, you're part of that equation to a certain degree. So there's value that I can help put into it, I think, hopefully to sort of, you know, get a price for you as a grower. And that's just one example. And I don't, I'm not trying to like say I'm a, any sort of like savior bullshit or any hero or anything there. I'm just <laughs> buying fruit from a good farmer, but I don't know. Yeah, that's I mean, sort of like the best case scenario. Most of the time it's just, it's just really tough trying to yeah, again, yeah. trying to control and get what you want, but also sort of like feeling often disconnected uh, from the land and, and from the process to a certain degree. And I, yeah. I like having my hands in the dirt. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think that's a big, big draw for me though. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Um, and there are pros and cons to buying. I mean, the, the, some of the business pros are, you know, it's, they're all sort of double-edged swords, but the, you know, you, you have the, you're not committed to that vineyard you're committed to a tonnage and that that vineyard might only yield two tons this year it might yield four tons an acre and but you're getting your tonnage 
based on the price that you negotiated ahead of time. And the farm, you know, in that sense, a farmer is taking the risk of, you know, whatever happens to the vintage, you know. Um, but then again, you have no control and those contracts could be pulled. You could not get them the following year. You know, there's all these things, you know, people can say one thing and then, you know, when it comes time to it, oh, sorry, we don't have enough grapes or whatever. It's happened mm-hmm. more than once to me. Um yeah, yeah, I'm interested in <laughs> models that are, end up being a little more equitable, I hope. And I'm not right. going to pretend like I am have some wisdom in implementing these, but a sort of sharing yeah. the risks and sharing the rewards a little bit. Um, the, the one more thing I'll say about that, about purchasing fruit and, and the negos lifestyle is um, there's a lot of folks that I think don't necessarily understand the socioeconomic context of a place like California and like you said you know not being the landed gentry and having so many hectares <laughs> given to you at birth right. which might be a little more common in Europe and who might just look at winemaking done by people who don't grow fruit as less than and I don't know I want to push back on that narrative because I've met so many talented people who grow grapes grapes in California who just do that and that's a skill that's a scare. There are there are people I could start now, and I will never be as good at growing fruit as certain people who I've worked with. And it's a privilege to to buy fruit and to sort of shepherd that. Right? They've started this thing, and I'm I'm going to finish yeah. it to a certain degree. Right? That's that's an honor and a privilege. Um, and, and I don't think necessarily a harm of quality. Right? Uh, where I could come yeah. in and, and be like, I this is what I want to do, and I know how to do it, and have no idea. And really, I mean, hopefully just, you know, screw up the fruit and not damage vines or anything like that and, and truly ruin a space. But I, I don't know. I, I want to give more credit to those people who do that work and, um, yeah, and, and not think that the, the wines produced through that methodology are necessarily less than those of a, of a grower producer. Like, I, I understand the desire. Like, I want to be a grower producer, too. I want to work with fruit that I just, I grow. but. That takes an immense amount of, of privilege, right? That That's an economic situation yeah. that isn't available to all of us. And um, yeah, I, I think it's still absolutely yeah. worthwhile to be buying fruit from great growers, equitably. Yeah, certainly. I, I love that too. Yeah, I know everything you said, I think is really important. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, especially you think about an urban situation uh, <laughs> and there's so much more of that now. I mean, you know, it, anybody wanting to make wine in LA it's you know it's uh could you ever buy land I mean there there land would not be used for vines within you know an hour's drive of where I live I mean it would be foolish well that's I mean other than my front yard and backyard and things (laughs) like that but you know yeah there's a scale very limited amounts of land yeah 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 yeah. very limited amounts of land would be used it's just yeah not economically wise um to to do that and impossible for most of us um so yeah i think it's really important well let's move on to do you want to talk about the move and and what sort of inspired that i mean you already talked about uh the viability of the future of california and where you could afford to be and now you are uh in the finger lakes right yeah absolutely i'm, I'm at the south end of uh, uh seneca and cuba lakes very close to uh, Ithaca is probably the the geographic reference point that uh, yeah. that anyone you're outside of the area would not uh, 
with, or at least with no. Unless you're into like racing, unless you're into. Oh yeah, Watkins Glen, of course. Yes, yes. If you are a gearhead, uh, Watkins Glen is a place. I'm yeah, ten minutes away from from Watkins Glen. Um, yeah, it's a it is a very quiet agricultural part of the world. Um, yeah, and there is definitely this is often called the this, you know the foremost wine producing region of of New York and probably by extension, you know, the Northeast United States, but gosh, it's really, it's not saying much compared, at least scale wise compared to, uh, compared to California. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's because it's essentially, it became that because it's limited to the, the banks of the Finger Lakes, right? Where you have this, uh, the microclimate, the tempering climate, you know, can influence of the lakes creating this, uh, you know, sort of coastal microclimate right along the banks, which, these slopes that slope down to the banks prevent frost and some of the deepest, deepest cold from killing vinifera. Uh, exactly right. And yeah, planted there. Yes, if you um, want to be growing vinifera, you've got to be doing it really, really close to these lakes. Um, right, and there's right. only so much lake but, space. <laughs> but I think the question for you is: you, you, you have a little land. What mm-hmm. are you going to plant, and and why? What yeah, are your thoughts cool. about? planting the grapes that you're going to plant yeah that's a great question i am not on uh one of those little lakefront properties i could probably not (laughs) afford that either um i'm i'm just going to be planting hybrids i'm going to be planting three acres of of hybrid grapes uh this spring and that is a decision about where i am specifically i'm i'm not throwing a stone and hitting a body of water so i don't have that uh moderating effect right um, but also I'm, and this feels a little strange because I, I'm, I'm very much an outsider here and I, I'm new to this place and there, there are people who've been here a long time, uh, doing good work. So it feels, it feels strange to be coming in <laughs> and saying, wow, look at all this work you're all doing. I, I would sure do it differently, but I'm, <laughs> I've got kind of a flaw fly in the ointment personality sometimes. Um, but I, I'm seeing change here. So this last year, um, this last year, I, I actually got to make some wine, some some from both grapes and from apples, and I was plugging into the community here, and and it was so so challenging. It was a very wet, very humid year, and the pressure from uh, you know mold, black rot, mildew was really off the chart. Even for conventional growers, they're just out there spraying constantly, and it's not enough. And there's a lot of fruit on vines still. Um, and I'm because worried you, that, sorry, go on. I, a lot of fruit on vines because you wouldn't want to pick it or use it for anything. Cause it yeah, was too far ruined, gone. You know, you, you fight the battle and sometimes you win or you win enough. And then sometimes you just lose. Um, and there's yeah. a good deal of fruit lost. It seemed, I don't have numbers on that necessarily. So I don't, I don't want to say too much, but it seems like that is where this place is going. As far as a climate is concerned, we can expect it to get, warmer and we can expect it to get wetter and that makes this is already if you come here in the summertime it's beautiful it can be very wet and very humid though and that's a challenge particularly for vinifera so i come here to a certain degree it sounds kind of dramatic but as i talk to friends uh particularly friends who are still in california um i'm recognizing that it's it's the start of sort of climate refugee ism to a certain degree um and and not necessarily so so immediate but i was thinking about 
what is 20 or 30 years from now going to look like? And again, recognizing that that's an immense privilege to be to be thinking that long out, but but getting to the place in my life, you know, slowing down a little bit, getting older, starting to get a, at least a little more financially stable, um, you know, where what, what is this going to look like? And not liking the answers in, in California, right? And, and coming here and still asking that question, not being like, okay, great, we escaped, the story's over, this place is wonderful, but recognizing that this place is changing too and trying to get a sense of where that change is going and get out ahead of it as much as possible. So this gets me thinking about resiliency, um, hmm. resiliency of, of, of communities, resiliency of food system, of, of agriculture, and of, you know, it, my particular case here of viticulture for sure what's the thing that i can do to to get out ahead of the problem um so uh hybrids come in because well first there are a lot of really cold hardy hybrids which is really nice um even here even if you're right up on the lakes sometimes really there are years where terrible terrible cold snaps happen and a lot of vines die a lot you know a lot of the riesling or cab franc dies and you've got to replant. And, you know, they hill up the vines at the graft union, uh, you know, go through the tractor and plow um, to sort of like make, to cover them in little dirt blankets. Right. And that's an annual thing here for that's like a standard practice. Um, yeah. But yeah. even that doesn't work sometimes. So I'm thinking about that. Um, so cold hardiness is something that hybrids can really offer. And then disease resistance more than anything. Right. Um, and and that's about making sure that there is fruit and that's sort of the viability problem, right? That's, that's the economic sustainability thing. If you're growing things, you'd like to harvest them that, that lets you do it the next year and and so on. Um, But, but also from in small ways, from an environmental standpoint, right? If I don't need to drive a tractor through rows spraying, you know, organic things, uh, sulfur, styloid oil, uh, hydrogen dioxide, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, You know, that's less fuel consumption. That's less labor hours. That's less compaction of the soil. Uh, you get the idea. So having vineyards that can take this abuse, right, of whatever Mother Nature is going to throw at us uh, and, and really thrive seems like the way to do it for me. And that's, you know, people are saying hybrids are the future. And I think that's what they mean. And what I'm seeing now you know, even just a one year like this is like, okay, this, this future is going to come sooner than maybe a lot of us think. Uh, and, yeah. and I want to start planning for it right now. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly seems that way. Um, I, I, I think there is an urgency that quite a few people don't realize yet. Um, but yeah. And especially when it comes to perennial crops that are, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years in the, in the fruiting. Um, I mean, if we're talking about orchards versus vineyards then uh or you know orchards and vineyards um yeah it's it's uh the time is now there is no more time to wait honestly uh, to start thinking about this stuff i mean it's time to start stop thinking honestly and start acting um yeah it's uh, i i mean I, I have a very similar thing and i think you know we've talked about that a little bit and i'm i'm curious how how did apple making i mean apple apple wine making cider making go for you mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, I mean, just as a totally changing gears there, I'm just curious how that was that your first experience? No, I had made, uh, I had made some cider previously in California. Um, No, that was really exciting. That was sort of expected, recognizing that there's lots of 
Right. Uh, there's yeah. lots of abandoned orchards. There's lots of genetic material here. Uh, this is sort of yeah. apple country to a certain degree. That, that was really feral ex- trees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the most exciting. That was maybe the most exciting part of, of the year actually was um, I literally printed out these little cards um, and stuck them in people's mailboxes, just, you know, down the County roads here where I live. It's like, hi, my name's Ian. I'm your neighbor. I want your apples. If you've got any apples in your trees, let me know. I'll come shake them down. When it's done, I'll give you some bottles of cider. And I got dozens and dozens and dozens of responses to that. And just, I, I, I met all I met all my neighbors. I got to explore this place, you know, drive down little corners that I would never, so I can shake down a, a few trees and, you know, some truly, truly boring apples and then some life affirming, it, you know, things I, I, flavors I never knew could be uh available in in a tree fruit like that um so that was really exciting i I, i'm i'm looking forward to exploring that more um man cider is uh cider apple wine whatever we want to call it is is really exciting to me too as it feels more like a project that you sort of get to be i don't know if i have the words for this quite yet but there are so many exciting apples i worked with that some of them had names, but maybe a fraction of them had names. You know, they're right. sort of, yeah. they're, they're, they're wild, they're feral things. Um, it's just the, the reproductive, the genetic reproduction of apples being so interesting. Of course, like an apple falls, it's got seeds in it. The seeds are not going to be the same thing as grew on that tree. It's going to be something entirely different. So the possibility for diversity, you know, absolutely explodes. Um, yeah, just like going out in the woods, finding a, a you know, a fruit that's really fantastic, getting some cyan wood, grafting that onto something else, sort of replicating this process. Uh, it, it, it's sort of like a, I don't know, like some folks talk about masal selection in grape growing, right? And sort of, you know, right. I liked this one, so we're going to do more of that. And then getting this sort of, you're working with nature, you're, you're trying to master it to a certain degree, but mostly you're, you're working with this and, and uh, helping sort of create and establish an identity to a certain degree, at, at least, you know, genetics and, and flavor wise. I think that's, I think that's really exciting. So I'm, I'm looking much forward to doing more of that. I love that. Now, considering the, uh, everything that you're considering in, in terms of what to plant as far as vines go in your three acres, what are your thoughts about the trellising that you're going to use? What, what are you, what are the considerations and, and what are you going to do in terms of both affordability, every, any consideration go, you know, down the line i know it, it, it's <laughs> I, I don't know i there's so many thoughts i could suggest but i'll just leave it as a blank thing oh i that's gonna for sure depend on the uh the grape variety i think more than anything and, okay. and okay a desire to you know control or encourage vigor and i'd like to a certain degree that to be as a see as they see as we go as they go the vines go uh, sort of a situation. More than anything, I'm expecting to uh, use high wire cordons rather than like the VSP that you see all over, or goblet training okay. that you see even less that you see all over California. Um, yeah. Top top wire cordoning, uh, just because a lot of these hybrids that uh, that non vinifera material is giving a little more vigor to them. Um, so I'm anticipating larger spacing too. Than you might see in a lot of uh, of vinifera vineyards, um, just okay. because these plants want to, they often want to grow nice and big. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, any consideration? I guess one of the things I was going to ask was like, are you, are you thinking of, you know, having some sheep or pigs or anything that are oh, going to help graze that vineyard? And, yeah. And is that going to inform what you're doing? Already got sheep. Um, okay. They're, so they're already uh, there. They're first. Already started. Yeah, with, right. Yep. They're, they're, honestly, we moved in. Uh, we've got like a, a farmhouse from 1850 and it needed all sorts of work. Um, and still it's a construction site right now, even to this day, but there was lots to do there, but it was like, okay, we're getting sheep right away. So, uh, six sheep, uh, six use, uh, Katahdins, which are, uh, they're kind of, I don't know, to me, they're kind of the hybrid of the sheep world. They're super disease resistant. They're hair sheep. They don't need to be, uh, shorn like wool sheep do. Um, yeah, very disease resistant. They don't mind hot weather. They don't mind cold weather. They're just, they're really not fussy and they can sort of take any condition that you throw at them. Uh, and yes, absolutely. They are going to be, uh, we're still leaving plenty of pasture for them, but in that planted vineyard area, they are going to be the lawnmower and to a certain degree, the fertilizer too. I, I'd love, I'm, you know, there, I find absolutely no reason to till a vineyard anywhere. Um, and that won't be right. done, but I'd, I'd really, really like to not have any sort of heavy machinery or equipment, even if it's just a lawnmower uh, on the vineyard surface. So the most I can possibly do to get away with that with, uh, you know, sheep and a weed whacker, I'm there for. Got it. But yes, uh, pigs too, pigs too, chickens, uh, vegetables, you know, fruit trees getting planted, all sorts of things. Do you intend with the vineyard to backpack spray or you're not going to do like a little tractor sprayer to to, to I, do any sulfur or stylet or whatever else? I've done three acres with a backpack sprayer and that was really fussy Sonoma Pinot Noir. And I'm okay. And if I had, ideally I'm going to be doing that much, much less because these are going to be more disease resistant hybrids and not fussy, fussy Pinot Noir. Um, I think backpack spraying will suffice. Um, there, some of these varieties I'm growing or uh, planting here in the spring, uh, two that come to mind, uh, Aramella and Arundel, uh, they're coming from the Cortinelle program out of, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a sort of experimental station, uh, viticulture station in Geneva, which is at the other end of the lake here on the top. And they have a particular block which is sort of the trial by fire. This is the no spray. Um, they don't do anything. They're, you know, there's no no protection, even most basic protections of something like uh, a downy or powdery mildew. Um, they're just letting it go. And if it, the grape survives, it goes on to the next challenge. And if it doesn't, it gets cut. Um, so that fruit with that level of resistance with like, gosh, maybe I spray this once a year. Maybe if I get away with it, I don't spray it at all. That's the goal. The less time energy, fuel, chemistry that I'm putting into that vineyard, the better. The more it can take care Absolutely, of itself. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. So just as a heads up about those, black rot is definitely something that they're susceptible to. Those two that you mentioned. Uh, ah, just as a yes, heads up. Yes, yes. So Good to know. Thank you. Be, be, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I know a, an organic uh viticulturalist in Virginia who basically had to pull out all of her stuff. She, or or actually she had a, she faced pulling out all of her vines or spraying with a non-organic fungicide. And she, so she lost her organic certification oh, um, because of black rot on, on yes. Arendelle. On Arendelle specifically. Um, That's great to know. Thank yep. you. Yeah. 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 So 
it it was marketed as like a no spray like there was a big thing and then a lot of people found and it's a delicious one i mean that's the other thing it's like pinot parentage pinot noir parentage Mm -hmm. um and it's you know it's got a lot of a lot going for it 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 ticks all the boxes except black rod i think (laughs) um just as a head yeah (laughs) not not everything's perfect understood okay yeah good good. i'll be prepared for this (laughs) but but that's great i love that you're doing that that's fantastic i i so um what what was the transition like like how are you making it work as you you know move to a new place did you have inventory that you had to move or are you just keeping it in a warehouse in california like it's in know, california oh yeah for, about the logistics yeah for sure for you dear listeners there's absolutely still uh wines that i've been in california over the last few years <laughs> that are available uh contact your sales rep today uh, no, yeah, those are those are staying in California. The the logistics and the legality of of getting them. Oh yeah, the here, legality also, of transporting them. Oh yeah. Guess, yeah, but all, more than anything, I'm I'm moving to a place where I don't know a lot of people yet, and and getting to know them slowly. And it yeah, it didn't make sense. I knew people who would buy wine that I made in, in California, so I just kept it there. Um, yeah, that all stayed, and then it's sort of going to start from fresh here, and I mean. New York City is a decent sized market for wine drinking, I'm told. Sure. Uh, so I think a lot of it is going to stay in state. And that's that's kind of an economic question too. Um I'm I'm a big proponent of self-distributorship where it's logistically or legally available. Um it it just makes a lot of sense as a small producer not to be giving big cuts to uh distributors. But at the yeah. same time, I, you know, I've got friends all over the country that I'd like to share wine that I make with, and I, I will make sure that you know, small quantities of it, at the very least, are are making it back to uh, the West Coast eventually. And did you, you've, see, you've, have you been through the licensing process? I have. Yes. Yeah. Is it comparable to California? Do you like? I mean, did you find it to be more bureaucratic or cumbersome or anything else? No, I think it was a little less cumbersome, actually. And I was sort of, I mean, New York bureaucracy is kind of famous, so I wasn't really expecting that. Um, I'll say the one difference that I recognized was I got in touch right away with someone who, I'm forgetting like the agency or whatever that, that this guy was from specifically, so I don't want to misquote it. But suffice to say that his job was sort of small scale business development and making sure that someone like me who was coming here and wanting to make wine, even on a very small scale, knew exactly what I needed to do and was plugged into and had all of the resources that I had. So the development, I think, and particularly in like, I live in a very rural place too. And like, I gotta be honest with you, kind of an economically depressed place where medium income is some small fraction of what it might be in a place like, you know, Oakland or whatever. Um, Right. So recognizing that an industry like wine brings brings jobs, it brings a certain degree of tourism, but it also might help keep the agricultural identity of a place. It's sort of like, hey, welcome. Let us know what you need. And I, gosh, when I was signing up in California, I didn't get any of that at all. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. And are you doing a distillery license as well? That's a great question. I know here I am, the, yeah. the distiller turned winemaker who who doesn't even have a still <laughs> anymore. I'm actively in touch 
uh, and communicating with folks that have distilleries, established distilleries in the area here and trying to essentially, this is hard. A, a lot of distilleries love doing contract stuff. You're like, I want a luxury vodka label. And they're like, cool, let us distill, package, whatever brand label. You know, you just, you go out and sell it or, or put your face on it or whatever. Um, but I'm like, oh, hey, I actually, I think I know how to do this. Can I just use your very expensive equipment and do it the way I want to do it? Not everyone likes that or is looking for that relationship. So I'm actively seeking the right relationship with uh, a distillery that'll let me essentially, I guess, rent time on their equipment and yeah. then figuring out all the legality around that because, you know, different spaces, again, we don't need to bore people too right. much with alcohol regulation stuff. But um, that's that's the goal because, yes, I particularly want to be distilling fruit. Um, I, I previous in California, I had made um, uh, a fruit brandy eau de vie, uh, you know, from apples, from apricots, um, lots of grappa. I really love making grappa. Um, it gets such a bad rap, but I think it's, oh, I think it's so pretty and, and such a great, such a great stream for, you know, what is otherwise a, a waste product, right? Like eventually it's going on a compost pile. So waste is relative, but economically waste, um, you know, Paquette, of course, being the other avenue there. Right. But uh, yeah, I would love it if people were drinking more grappa, and I'd, I'd love the opportunity to be making more of it in the future. Have you played around with uh, Apple Jack, where you're you're freezing the juice or anything like that, where you, instead of a, a heat distillation, it's cold distillation? Yeah, cryo distillation. Um, cryo distillation. There you go. Yeah, that just makes it sound really fancy and scientific, right. doesn't it? We're <laughs> we're freezing stuff over here. Um, I haven't. Um, I'm under the impression that, and I don't want to misquote here, but I'm under the impression that there's some problems around that because you're not you're not taking fractions, you're not making cuts essentially, right? You're not saying, oh, that's the the bad stuff and the good stuff. So, um, you know, mm, you're you're compounding something like, uh, uh, you know, something like methanol, for example, which you don't want to be drinking. That's not being removed during that freezing process. So your your volume is shrinking down. Your alcohol is going up, but the bad alcohols are staying in there, and that uh, that worries me to a certain degree. Oh, interesting! So those bad alcohols are not a byproduct of the heating process. That's what I always thought. No, they're like... typically they're, they're byproducts of the fermentation process, and depending on the fruit that you're using, some are more or less. Uh, often, seeds and, and nuts, the kernels of fruits, are more. I think again, don't misquote me here, but are sort of the, the, the agents or the catalysts or sources for that. So something like a ferment of cherries, if you keep the cherry stones in there, that can be a, you know, there's a, it's going to have much more methanol than say, if you were taking up whole grapes, right? Because grape seeds are, are much, much smaller. Um, but yeah, those alcohols, you know, you have lighter alcohols that come off first, your heads, then you have your heart section, ethanol mostly, hopefully, and then some heavier right. fusel alcohols at, uh, at higher temperatures later in the distillation and you'd like to remove those ends to get a nice clean product right i i did not even consider that that's very interesting so careful are you saying <laughs> i shouldn't do this at home <laughs> not. i don't know that's yeah <laughs> not without some extra study anyway <laughs> yeah look look into that look into that to a certain degree because um you know there are folks making ice ciders around here which you know, are using that to a, a certain degree, a light degree. I think it's sort of an all things and in, in moderation 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess I w- it just is fascinating to me because it's like if you drank the cider, you'd be drinking everything that was in it. So why would freezing it and oh. extracting what's in it cause a bigger problem? Other than you know what I mean? Like this. This is where I'm going to go way out of my depth here. I, I think okay. volume is part of it. You know, just like when you concentrate right. something, it's more you're concentrated, able to drink right. more of it. You're just drinking. Well, you're drinking less water too, right? I think. Oh man, I'm. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth here. I think there's something to say about taking away a thing from its its sort of source material. So I, this is a thing in, in medicine too, to a certain degree, right? Where we have a plant material that has a, uh, a you know an effect on something, right? It's like a cough suppressant or whatever, and you know we CBD. you know western science takes this thing and they're like cool we're going to sequester that one thing that does the thing that has that action and then put it in a pill or whatever and then you take that pill and there's side effects and you're like well why is there side effects cuz you know there was a lot more going on we took a plant a really complicated thing with all of these compounds in them that might work in ways that we don't fully understand and then take out the one thing and expect it to do the same thing that's not always how it works okay all right all right. I'll probably be calling you in three or four hours and being like, please cut this out. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not a doctor. Um, I think it, you know, there, there we'll might be research. something to do with we Yeah, we will. We should have to do this. I think that uh, uh, like yeast particles, right? Um, no, I'm putting okay. my foot in my mouth. Okay, never mind. We'll, we'll research it. You know, we'll, I should, okay. you know, we should research a, together. This, this podcast needs a live researcher. <laughs> That's that's <laughs> anybody there out there. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's talk about your 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 winemaking, or mm-hmm. because I know you you have a you have some philosophical sort of principles that you adhere to. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the winemaking that you engage in? Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, obviously, starting with the vineyard, which I mean, I I. I I hate that I have to sort of clarify that at this point. Maybe I don't on this podcast, but when I talk about winemaking, I re- maybe I should just say wine growing or something like that because mm-hmm. obviously I think there's a foundation that really begins in the vineyard and the earth, the soil, the whole foundational aspect of the, the agriculture behind getting those grapes to the point where you can do anything with them. But let's let's take it from there anyway. I, I'm... I'm I think you've already talked about what you want to do in terms of the farming and what that means to you and what your values are there. So let's mm-hmm. say, you know, po- once you receive the grapes or apples, what's what's your what do you what do you do at that point? Can I actually back that up just a little bit? Yeah, because I think yeah, there's in, in, I have the sort of goals here. Um, and to answer that question, like quickly off the cuff, I would have always started with. Well, I start with organically produced grapes, blah, 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 and then go Great. into maybe Perfect. more the production side of things. Um, and that's exactly what happened in, in California, for sure. And yes, I've, I've talked a little bit about what I, I mean, three, four years from now, when fruit here is starting to come online, how, how things are going to be, you know, regenerative agriculture, no-till, hybrids, but let nature do as much as it possibly can, interfere as little as possible, make it like truly uh uh, uh, resilient to, to climate change as much as possible, sheep, blah, 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 you know, checking off all of the boxes. Um, in the meantime, I'm getting fruit from other people in the Finger Lakes. And I'll tell you, the where organic grape growing is here is not 
where organic grape growing is, is in California. In California, uh, you could go on an internet forum and, man, you can order organically produced, you know, well-grown fruit like you're ordering a hamburger at a restaurant um, and, you know, pick, pick the variety you want, you know, if you want Bordello, yeah. if you want Muscat, if you want Aglionico, whatever, you can have it. Yeah. It's out there. Yeah. Um, that really, really isn't the case here. It's smaller industry, of course, but again, this is still a relatively large, for the area, it's the big wine growing region. But the culture of organic viticulture here is not in the same place. And I think there's a cultural aspect there for sure. But I, yep. I think there's also a uh, reality. There's an environmental reality of this yeah. place. It's a yeah. You know, I'm, if you're I'm growing vinifera, trouble. especially right. No, yeah, particularly if you're growing vinifera. But it's you know, there's you can go in parts of California six months and not see a cloud. Right, humidity isn't <laughs> the same problem in the way it might not rain at all. Whereas here, you know, rain, rain and humidity can destroy things. Um, so that's a reality too. Any any old timer who's you know, if you start break, if you bring up organic viticulture, you're going to get a whole bunch of opinions here real quickly, and they run the gamut from, yeah, that would be nice to that's absolutely impossible. You're crazy for even thinking it. And there's a lot of people who are who are pretty staunch about that. Um, yeah. Again, that's sort of in <laughs> that's sort of in the context of vinifera where it's really challenging. But also, there's a lot of the the history of vinifera here is not very is not very long right? That only goes back a few decades. Before that, it was native varieties. And uh, I guess what we can sort of call like first generation hybrids, you know, not like La Crescent or Frontenac, uh, you know, fairly recent inventions, but but things that go way back. Uh, but this is right. a big native grape producing region. And there's still lots of native grapes grown, uh, you know, jams and jellies, but also for wine, there's people making wine here. Um, and I mean, yeah, good examples too. You have like Nathan Kendall and, and Pascaline uh, Le Petier doing uh, Chipica and and sort of getting all in on on those the sort of agricultural heritage that way. But sorry to bring it back to you know <laughs> organics here. I I made grapes this year with not organic grapes or sorry I made wine this year with not organic grapes for the first time and I did that with a really big asterisk next to it. I was developing relationships with growers who had and were sort of working in the direction of organics, but not sort of jumping all in at once and wanted to do that slowly because there's an economic reality too. But peeling, peeling things away one thing at a time, you know, like this year we're going from, yeah. uh, you know, chemical weed control to mechanical weed control, and, or maybe we're only doing it in this half of the vineyard or that sort of thing. And maybe I've, you know, I've got a little test plot of organic stuff, but I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about it. I don't know what the future might be for it. I might tear it up. Um, and I'm trying to insert myself into this and being like, hey, let's let's do this together. Um, I, I need organically grown fruit. Uh, if, if you want to do that, like you have an outlet, you have a buyer. Um, if, if risks are going to be taken and you're unsure about something, let's talk about that too. Let's talk about, you know, maybe not pricing things out per ton, but saying, I'm committing to buying this this vineyard plot here. And if there's terrible damage because I asked you to do something, that I'm going to be eating that, right? Things like this. And and yeah, getting toward, and thinking of organics more as a process than as uh, sort of a, a 
binary black and white kind of issue because I'm, I'm thinking about it like again, it's great if you're in California, if you're a me, if you're young Ian in California, you know, ordering up organic grapes like a hamburger and, and making wine. There's nothing wrong with that. But out here, where there's very few people actually growing or even less certified organic, some punk kid like me just like coming, it's like coming in and scrambling to buy up all the organic stuff and like not leaving it for someone else. I don't think there's anything really radical about that. You know what I mean? I don't don't think there's anything particularly uh, progressive. I think the real good work that can be done is being part of of a culture and a community that's taking vineyard acres vine by vine out of conventional production and putting them into organic production. And to do that, you have to be engaging with farmers who might have just a straight up conventional mindset or, or a, a organo curious mindset. Right. Um, I wouldn't buy fruit from anyone who I didn't think had the possibility of getting there or was interested in getting there. Does that make sense? And I've run into those people who are like, I'm, I'm organic except I do this, this, and this, and I'm not going to change doing this, this, and this, because I think this is absolutely essential. And I'm very happy with my methodology and the quality of the grapes that I grow. I feel like that's, you know, fantastic, right. you know, good, good work. Have a nice day. I'm not going to be, yeah. I don't think I have any work that I can do there. I don't think I can plug in in a meaningful way there. Uh, so yeah, this, this year I, for the first time, I, I did get some organic fruit. I got some certified organic fruit and I got some, I got some conventional fruit that I think, is worth it for relationship building in the long term. Yeah. And I'm coming yeah. to terms with that and how I'm going to how I'm going to talk to people who buy wine from me about that in the future. But I think the more the more I sit on that, the the more I think that that's going to be a good conversation, that that's going to be a positive conversation that might uh, that might break down some preconceived notions a little bit and and, and get people thinking about organic as a process if that makes sense right like a moving target yeah yeah no i think i applaud that uh thoughtfulness that you approach that with i I, I found myself in a similar position moving our production to la this year there's just i I think there if i'm correct and i think i am correct there are no certified organic vineyards in la county um and you know there's various degrees of that you know there are people who just you you know are in the desert and all all they're doing is adding fertilizer um because you know all you need is water there i mean there's literally no pressure f- of anything up there right. um to you know to like i think in malibu they're farming full conventional or you know mm-hmm. there there's various degrees of it anyway um but yeah. yeah i mean that was a choice for for us it's like it was a carbon footprint thing. It's like we, we were committed to being local. We want, you know, we really see the value in that. And, and it was like, if we're doing that, then we can't make from certified organic vineyards. I mean, we did find some just across mm-hmm. the County line in in uh, San Bernardino County. That's yeah, still very local to us, still the same, same distance that we're driving within LA County to get grapes. But, um, and I can think I ask you a question be, yeah, along those yeah, lines actually? How do you, cause yeah. I'm trying to, I'm coming to terms with this too and reconciling, um, wanting to be as much as possible part of developing sustainable, like truly sustainable, climate resilient, regional food systems. Yeah. How do you feel as a winemaker of saying like, yeah, I buy local fruit to make wine here. And then the wine goes halfway across the world. <laughs> How do you feel about that? And, or, yeah. Or, yeah. Do, you, mean, do you think uh... about like in terms of ratios being like, cool. 
I'll only send 5% of this to Stockholm or Oslo or whatever, or, you know, and the rest has to be consumed in California or I'll sell regional, I'll sell here first. And then when I run out of market, what do I stop making wine do, or do I make less wine next year? Or do I expand that market outward and, and try and find where am I comfortable going to? Where am I not comfortable going to? That sort of a thing. I think uh, that's a fantastic question. I, 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 I do think about that. Um, I don't think I have the answer. I mean, we're, we're, we're not big enough to, we're not international at this point, but we are, you know, we are sending wine to New York and that's, I mean, there's some statistics that show, you know, sending a truck across the country is a larger carbon footprint than a ship from France to New York. So, you know, it's technically New Yorkers might want to just be drinking French wine rather than California wine at this point for carbon reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but that that's the kind of stuff you have to get into if you're really thinking about that. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I I I I do. I really am committed to that local thing to a certain degree. I mean, I buy California. <laughs> I hate to say it. Like, I mean, when I'm in New York, I buy New York. Um and I I mean, I I guess I'm I'm a little I I buy from the west and southwest is kind of what I do. And yeah, I mean, as I mean, the the the, the one choice that we've made is extremely lightweight bottles the lightest weight bottles mm -hmm. available um so that you know we're reducing that shipping emissions as much as possible anytime the wine is moved because i mean even if you're local the wine moves five times before it ever gets to a customer you know before it ever gets right. to somebody drinking it and at least you know i mean it can move a lot more than that so it yeah that, i mean that's that's it i mean i think we are kind of reducing our production a little bit. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that may be part of it as well. It's just, but look, if the, the question I, I should be asking myself is, you know, let's say Japan was like, oh, we want, you know, three pallets of you, this wine of yours. Would I say no to that? Because, <laughs> you know, it's international. I don't think I'd say no to that. You know, um, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I don't, how would you approach that? I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out and come to terms with it because it's part of particularly what I love about um, what I love about wine and like this natural wine niche that I find myself in is sort of this international community. Um, and I might not see people for years, but you know, we find ourselves together in the same place. We're, we're old friends that, um, you know, it's sometimes like a day hasn't passed, but there you can sort of have that tangential relationship to, by drinking each other's wines. And I find there's something really, really culturally satisfying about that. And, and I don't, I, I would, I don't think I could ever give that up entirely. Um, I think for me, it's as a consumer, it's starting to think more about wine that's been on a boat as more an occasional pleasure than sort of an every day. And if I say were to walk into a wine shop in New York, I wouldn't go straight to you know, the wall of like the Loire or Ardèche or Catalonia or <laughs> right. wherever, you know, right. that I might be like, okay, let's, let's look at, for daily drinking, let's look at New York. Let's look at, at more of the local stuff yeah. here. Um, but as a seller of wine, right. What is that? Am I going to say like, no, Japan, three pallets is too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. I, I've had the thought of sort of breaking that up in, uh, in, in terms of like ratios to a certain degree or percentages, but um, mm. I'm also, I, I don't think I'm that far advanced as sort of a seller of wine where I can, 
being like, you can have it, but you can't. I just, I, I've actually got some wine I need to sell to pay some bills and whoever wants to buy right. it can, can absolutely buy it. Yeah. I, th- I mean, that's, that's a reality, right? I mean, I, that's why I think it's such a great question because it does put those two values against each other. Like the, the, you know, the obvious need to survive and sustain yourself as a business and make money to be able to continue to make wine versus these ecological values and I, I think i think it is a great question for that reason it's well that's sort of a I, can i like connect that back to where i am in the finger lakes yeah because that's a thought that yeah. i've had when i'm talking to people so not to like i'm not a finger lakes historian so i'm not even going to pretend here but i i had mentioned previously <laughs> that you know there is a history here of, of native and hybrid grapes and then vinifera is sort of a more recent thing and well, it might be a wine region that some people know of. It's still it's still a place trying to establish itself. And I think from kind of a collective marketing perspective, it's a region that's really hung its hat on Riesling and wants to be right. known as a world-class location for Riesling. Um, and I, I understand the economic imperative of that. But when I think about the challenges of, of climate change, it, it starts to make me question that as... Vinifera here, for a lot of people, seems like an axiom, like the first principle that they're not going to to challenge. Like, you know, I ask like, oh, you know, oh, you're spraying these chemicals on this vineyard. It's like, yeah, we have to or they're going to die. And it's like, you have to or they're going to die or you'll get no fruit or whatever because you planted Pinot Noir or whatever the case may be, right? And if you you challenge that assumption, if you're willing to challenge that assumption, uh, then maybe that equation pans out differently but it, it makes me think of this thing too because it's sort of like you know well it's a you kind of framed it as an economic thing or a or an environmental thing and i i think most of the time the things are connected and they're hard to separate but it's like well maybe i just make as much wine as my my local or regional market can handle and i don't make any more wine than that so then i'm not given that problem like oh do i sell wine to japan or not right you know because I, I, right. I thought coming here i was like Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna make organic wine here, and if it's not possible, I'm gonna make beer, or I'm going to like sell kale and cabbage at the farmers market. I'm going to do something else. I'm I'm committed to organic agricultural production, and if grapes don't work, grapes weren't the axiom for me, right? Grapes weren't the wine. They weren't the first principle that I was going to take for granted. Um, right. I I, I think right. in a in a dynamic, frightening, terrifying, uh, apocalyptic climate change times that if we, if we, if we're not willing to sort of challenge all of those assumptions, then, then we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for a certain degree of disaster. Right. And it's, it's funny to me, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, having left just California and you've got, what is it? Uh, uh, Larkmead, they've got a sort of experimental vineyard of things that are much more, uh, heat tolerant than, Cabernet Sauvignon, right? Because of course, you think of Napa Valley, you think of Cabernet Sauvignon, but 20, 30, 40 years from now, that might not be the case. You might not be able to do that there. So the progressive thing to do is not to say, this is what we are known for. We have to be stubborn. We are are going to, you know, you're like the orchestra going down on the Titanic, right? Right. You gotta, you don't go, don't go down on that sinking ship. Like you gotta, you've gotta be adaptable for it and you've gotta be looking towards you know, the future and, and what's really going to be possible down the line here. And I worry to a certain degree about a place like this being like Riesling is it. Riesling is what we'll be known for. So it's like, yeah, 
unless it's like too humid and then, you know, even you conventional growers right. can't spray enough and then there's no Riesling any, you know what I mean? Like, right. what are we doing Which here? Is, I, I often talk about that's like, I don't know why we didn't adopt the French way of doing things because we adopted their grapes, but we didn't, you know, I mean, if we named it the Finger Lakes white or the Finger Lakes red, you have this flexibility of including anything that works to make that white wine or to make that red wine. You know, Bordeaux is already incorporating new varieties besides the five, the big five red, you know, in their blend because they've realized with climate change, they have to adapt. And so now they're, they have like peewee varieties and things like that that are now allowed by the AOC. In I'm glad to see that and, that's slowly changing because there's the attitude in France, particularly up to this point has sort of been pushing back, I, particularly on hybrids. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, and I don't have the, I mean, I know that there, I, I don't have the specifics of what they are, what maybe, maybe they're not peewee variety, but they are, there are new varieties, <laughs> I'll put it that way, that are being allowed. Um, but I mean, if you name, if you take, if you step away from varietal names, then you have this huge opportunity to just be a terroir red wine and whatever does well in that terroir can be grown and used in that red wine. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe no, it's, I think, maybe I think it's that's a absolutely future, a good future point. for us. Cause it's like, great. Some hybrids are like, that is the truth of anything. Like we have such a variety of wonderful apples in this country because you know, we think you and I were talking about this Johnny Appleseed floated down the rivers and planted from seed wherever he went and so the the seeds that survived the trees that grew and survived were adapted for that area and we created this whole diversity of new varieties of apples that thrived and now those apples that thrived and were created these wonderful delicious new varieties are now need to be grown with like massive conventional agricultural chemicals to be able to thrive again because 100 years has passed or 150 years has passed and so it's it's a process. I think you brought up a process. Organic as a process. I think this is the other aspect of it. It's like we have to think not like, oh, let's like obsess over the new, you know, thing that comes out of Cornell. It's like, no, this is going to be an ongoing process because the world will always change, you know. And even if it doesn't change, the the bugs will change <laughs> and the mildew will change, you know. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll need to continue to include different things. And if we're committed to any one thing if we aren't committed to diversity and inclusiveness of that diversity then we're going to fail you know at some point we're going to reach the end of that that line and fall off the cliff of whatever that one thing that we were committed to was anyway so couldn't agree more yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um where can we find out more about you (laughs) or what if people do want to try your stuff uh oh yeah absolutely What's, you are yeah. in California, uh, particularly around either the Bay or Los Angeles. Uh, you can absolutely, uh, you can absolutely find it if you look hard enough. I'm sure. I need to maybe update uh, the sort of where to purchase stockist section on my website, which doesn't exist. I might get on that right <laughs> now, actually. Um, and Ar- I, that's yeah, Artemis botanical.com not botanicals not plural because that that's also out there i noticed just for anybody trying to find you it's singular not plural artemis botanical yeah if if someone's trying to sell you bath salts you're in the wrong spot (laughs) i mean 
I don't know. Those I've heard they uh, are are nice to drink depending on the circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> Or smoke. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> so Artemis Botanical, do you do you have any other presences out there that you want people to follow along on or not really? Yeah, Instagram would be great. That's okay. a, And if you want to talk and I don't know you, that's probably the best place to, to reach out. Um, yeah, I'm on there on the regular. Okay. Is that Artemis Botanical? Uh, <laughs> I'm on there. I'm never on there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Artemis Botanical. Artemis yes, Botanical. it is. Artemis Botanical finds. There it Great. is. With the plague mask character. <laughs> yeah, the plague doctor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Truly uh, timely. Yeah, for sure. The, the Avatar little there. mask, I guess, were often stuffed full of, uh, of, of plant material, herbs and such, that they thought was going to, you know, clean or filter mm-hmm. or out plague uh, back to, you know it. back when we knew even less than we do now about contagious diseases <laughs> just like the herbs and botanicals in your vermouth will prevent covid for anybody yeah. who drinks it <laughs> <laughs> oh please don't please i mean dude like you know honestly truly i think i think herbs i think herbs are the sort of part of of, of a diet that's been you know that we don't have that that can no, I'm going to shut up. Actually, I'm going to walk that back entirely. Please do not. I'm, I am not giving any medical advice about anything. Um, please drink in moderation. 21 years or older. <laughs> Just tempting you to, you know, go out on the limb there. Um, I appreciate that. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Ian. It's, really, hey, it's a real pleasure. I love talking I... about these things. It's, yes, please. Any what? final closing oh, yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Um, or questions or I, anything? I hate, to, I hate to plug, but... Um, I'm just beginning the search here for a harvest intern or harvest interns for next year. And this seems like a great, if anyone wants to, to reach out, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly that's going to look like, but it would probably, you know, be between September 1st and and the end of November, potentially. Um, If you know, you're interested in, we'll be planting grapes this year, foraging apples, picking other people's fruit, uh, making really low tech wines. Um, I might be lambing some sheep in the autumn. There'll be lots of vegetables. If you're into, you know, hiking, it's a beautiful place here. Ceramics, woodworking, keeping bees, any of that, all that sort of uh, pastoral fantasy stuff. If that sounds like a fun time for you, then uh, I don't know, reach out. Or if you have like good, strong knowledge that they, they could add to your, to 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 aid you and assist you oh, as well as just yeah. physical labor, right? I really don't know what I'm doing. So if if you come here and you've got some <laughs> some good ideas, that would be that would be great. Yeah, awesome. Well, really, I hope. I mean, I obviously wish you the best of luck with that, and I'm kind of very excited to check back in a little while and see how it's going, and and uh, hopefully pop in for a visit as well. Oh, please, uh, open invitation, Adam. I really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I really appreciate your time and attention. I want to introduce you to the Ecological Wine Score. It's a new way of scoring wine that will soon become the only wine score that matters. Now, I know if you're like me, you don't really care about wine scores. They're subjective. They always score certain types and styles of wine higher. And most importantly, they don't take into account the farming behind the wine. 
I personally don't care if your wine scores 100 points and is considered the best tasting wine on earth if you grew the grapes conventionally with chemical sprays and herbicides. I don't want to drink it. The ecological wine score changes all of this. First of all, the sensory experience of the wine only accounts for 10% of the score, and it's determined by multiple certified wine professionals rather than one appointed expert. And the rest of the score is determined by clear, objective benchmarks that evaluate human and animal welfare, vineyard ecology and terroir preservation, and operations, winemaking, and packaging. I created the ecological wine score because scoring wine based only on its flavor is like awarding the Nobel Prize based on how someone dresses. You can really only judge greatness in context, or the judgment will be meaningless. So check out the Ecological Wine Score at ecologicalwinescore.com. This is the future of wine scoring.